So good to see us all gathered here again today. Spring is emerging. Anybody ready for spring? That's right. It's like my neighborhood, everybody all of a sudden we haven't seen for four months and everyone's just like outside. It's like we renew all relationships and usually it's not March. I mean, this has been a blessing. That's why I just said French. That means um, like, right? I said, my brain is having challenges. I'm, I'm, I'm learning. Um, I started to learn Spanish too. I'm trying to get that. And this is like a 10, 20 year project, but my brain is soaking in foreign languages, and so I, I can't believe that just happened, but at least it wasn't a swear word. So uh, it could have been in French. You wouldn't have known. Okay, back on track. Uh, so uh, we are in the book of Genesis, and we, uh, let me just give you the overview, because some of you are new, and I want to have you track with where we've been. And so here's the deal. Genesis in one minute up to chapter 37 to where we are today. Um, God is God, and he created everything, and he made his people, and his people were given great gifts of creation and everything, um, and they sinned against him, and that screwed everything up. And God judged them, and there were some massive consequences that flowed from that, but that wasn't the end of the story. And God came in chapter 12 of Genesis to this guy named Abram, and he said, Abram, I'm going to use you, I'm going to change your name and give you a new identity, and I'm going to use you and all your descendants to save the world. And so he has Isaac. And Isaac has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And we are kind of rounding third in the book of Genesis to the final main character, historical figure of the book of Genesis named Joseph. And that's what we're going to dive into today. And we're going to see that Joseph um, comes from a very dysfunctional family. There's a lot of dysfunctional families in the book of Genesis, and uh, this is no exception. And so let's, let's pray and ask for God's help. Father, we, we thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you so much for your word that has um, been given to us as such a good gift by your spirit. And so may we have soft hearts to receive your word this morning. May it not just bounce off um, like rain washing off of a roof, but may it be like soil that soaks it in. And as a result, new life springs forth. And so may that be how your word is used among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've, we've got another vision of a dysfunctional family today in Genesis chapter 37. And I, um, a, a poignant story came to mind from my childhood. Um, my, th- my sister and I had a, a bit of a contentious relationship growing up. And... One day, I don't remember how this all got started, but I think my, I'm pretty sure my parents were not home. And uh, I honestly don't remember the details that got us to this point of conflict. But all I remember is I was in the basement watching a basketball game. And my sister walks down and she had a cup of water. I'm pretty sure it was my sister, not the other way around. But she might, if she was standing here, she might tell this differently. This is 30 years ago, okay? And so she had this cup of water and she wanted me to do something. And I couldn't even remember what she wanted me to do. She wanted me to do something. And I was like, whatever, I'm not doing that. And she's like, if you don't do this, I'm going to throw this water in your face. And I was just like, whatever, like I dare you. And, and, and I'm not doing what you want me to do. And she did. And so she just chucks this cup of water in my face. And so, you know, 
you know, my sister and I, she's three years older, and we're both kind of strong personalities and, and um, a bit strong-willed. And so, of course, the physical alter- altercation took place at that point. Now, when you're 9 and 12 or whatever it was, 10 and 13, you know, this isn't like grown men fighting. This is like silly slap fighting. You know what I mean? That, that, that siblings do. Hopefully they do. And, uh, and I must have gotten her pretty good because she, all I remember is her marching up the stairs like in a fury and rummaging through the kitchen and she comes back down to, and she has this meat fork. And she's like, I swear to God, I'm going to kill you with this. I will kill you. And I'm just like, what? Whatever. Like, it's a meat fork. It'd take you a while. Why don't you calm down? My sister had a flair for the dramatic, and this was definitely out of the ordinary. Um, And it's just like, whatever. So we've talked about that, obviously, since that day. And 30 years later, we've had plenty of reconciliation. It's all good. But, you know, we had our shares of bumps of dysfunction in the family that I grew up in. And that was... Uh, a poignant memory from my childhood. And it's silly, and we can laugh about it, but our narrative today is no laughing matter. And it's a big deal. And we're going to continue to see how the kids of Abraham continue to have dysfunctional relationships that are pretty messy, and how amazing it is that God chooses to use messed up dysfunctional families. Esau and Jacob... I mean, that wasn't a silly, meat-fork, dumb threat. There was a real threat because Esau was a man of, 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 um, of the nature and of, you know, killing animals. And he knew how to kill things, and he threatened to kill Jacob. And so Jacob had to leave. That was a few weeks ago. We learned about that. And now today with Joseph, we've got something sort of similar, very, very different, but the murderous threats are just as severe. So let's take a look in Genesis chapter 30, 37. Starting verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. So this is the land that God promised to give to Abraham and all of his descendants. And so God has been true to his word. There's another just small reminder that God has been true to his word. They're living in the land of promise right now. And these are the generations of Jacob, meaning these are Jacob's, um, this is his lineage. So now we're going to talk about Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhal and Zilpah, his father's wives. So Jacob had sons with 12 different, or sorry, with 12 sons with four different wives. And here's the thing. And Joseph brought, so they're out shepherding the animals, right? And Joseph, end of verse 2, brought a bad report of them, of his brothers, to Jacob, his father. Okay, so we learn that that his brothers had done something bad and he brings this report to his father, Jacob. And and so we learn that these brothers are maybe kind of some sketchy dudes. They've done something bad. We don't know what the Bible doesn't tell us, but they've done something bad. But also that maybe Joseph's a bit of a tattletale. And, you know, sometimes it might be very important to rat out your brothers. At other times, maybe it's not the best thing, depending on the circumstances And we don't have all the circumstances here, um, but we're going to get more clues to the situation in a second. So maybe Joseph wasn't the most wise. Maybe he was. Um, But his brothers, we've already learned here shortly that they're not model citizens. Okay? Verse 3. Now Israel, Israel's the new name for Jacob, the dad. Okay? 
Now, Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So we've got discord among brothers. Maybe it's because Joseph's a tattletale. Maybe it's because they just are feeling bad because they got caught doing something stupid. But we got discord. And in addition now to that discord, we've got family favoritism, right? That's clear in the text. Evidenced by this special gift that dad gave to Joseph. Now, the special gift back then, you know, today, most of you in this room, a lot of you in this room have closets full of clothes. Well, back, you know, a few millennia ago, in this part of the world, in this time of history, a lot of people didn't have clothes upon clothes upon clothes, like, like a lot of us do. And so a, a, a piece of clothing like this big coat, and the, the Hebrew words make it sound like it's, it's, it goes to the wrist all the way down to the ankle. So a big, you know, a big coat and multiple colors implying multiple types of fabric and so this is an expensive deal. This, all that to say, this is a very significant gift, okay? Now, favoritism is messed up. We've already seen how favoritism totally screwed up Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. And here it's happening again. And family favoritism, you've seen this in some of your own families. It never works out well. It can be so hurtful and, and, and disruptive to healthy relationships, Right? I've had the opportunity to travel a lot in my adult life. And a lot of times when I travel to some location, the children look forward to me coming home and giving them gifts, right? So imagine I'm off in some location for a week or two, and I come home, and the kids are expecting, you know, like Christmas come early or whatever. And we gather the family, and I bust out the gifts, and I look at the kids, and then I say, guess what? Maya, I love you. And you're my special daughter, and all of these presents are for you. And then I just let it sit there. What do you guys think? Thumbs down, right? Like, that would be bad news. And we can laugh about it, because God willing, they, they know that I wouldn't do that. But things like that happen in our world today. And imagine, just put yourself in the shoes. Maybe something like that's happened to you. But put yourself in the shoes of the text. This happened and so climb into the world of the text. Can you imagine how, you know, the other brothers, even though they're, they're, they're in some sense, they're, they're not good guys, well, that's just going to make their, their pain and their anger all that more deeply entrenched. And that's what we see. So we've got Joseph the Tattletale. We've got some favoritism that runs deep. And now we've got some vivid dreams that Joseph has had. Let's read about that, verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and... When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. 
Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. So it's not just agriculture anymore. This is now cosmic in scope. Okay? But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So what do we learn here? We learn here that his brother's anger burns hot. Look at verse 5 or look at verse 8. Intentional repetition. His brothers, they hated him even more. Verse 8. So they hated him even more for his dreams. See that there? So we got deep hatred, but also maybe Joseph's boasting here wasn't all that wise. Now, we're going to see that these dreams that he had, they fully come to pass. This is rock-solid truth. But when you have rock-solid truth, there's sometimes add, um, there's an added dimension of wisdom and timing and tone of voice that really comes into play. Just because it's true doesn't mean we just blurt it out in any context, right? Anybody can relate to that? Like, like guys, when your wife asks you, do I look good in these jeans? Like, sometimes I say to my wife, I don't know how to answer that. Because if I say yes, then you're just going to say, well, you're just saying that because you have to. Well, if I say no, that's not going to go either, right? So, you know, just because it's true or something is true doesn't mean we just always don't use wisdom or discernment in expressing truth. Well, maybe it's the same with Joseph here. You've got these massive dreams of what's probably going to come to pass, what we find does come to pass, and you just already know that your brothers are violent and, and they're not good dudes. Um, chapter 34 that we skipped over shows that these brothers are violent and they're not afraid to get after it and do some massive damage. You can go home and read chapter 34 today, but we're not, we, we passed over that one. But you've also got this fashionista coat now that's making you set apart from everybody else, and, and your brothers hate you because of that, and you've also ratted them out that we learned early on in the narrative. So spouting off about these dreams, maybe not the wisest choice, okay? Well, let's see how this works out. Let me just summarize verses 12 through 17. So Jacob sends the other sons, except for Joseph, off to do some shepherding of the animals, find pastures and whatnot. And then he decides to send Joseph to go find them. So Joseph goes and finds them. And the geography of the Bible here tells us they were probably about 50 miles away. So eventually Joseph finds his brothers pasturing these flocks. And then we'll see what happens next. Verse 18. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him so that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben here is the oldest, and he's got a plan to maybe rescue Joseph. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they, stripped, and they took him and threw him into a pit. 
The pit was empty. There was no water in it. All right, so what do we got? We got premeditated murder here based on their deep jealousy. But Reuben, the oldest, he's seeking to dial down his brothers a little bit. And that's verse 21 and 22. See the repeated word of rescue in 21 and 22. He says he, uh, he rescued them out of their hands not to kill him. Um, and he wanted to rescue him after a period of time left in the pit, evidently. So Reuben prevails. They don't kill him. But they do rip off his robe and they threw him in a pit. And we learn later in chapter 42 that Joseph here is is pleading for his life. And they don't have any of it. And they throw him in this pit. And then check out what happens next in verse 25. Look at how calloused and cauterized their conscience was. It says, and then they just sat down to eat. Like, yeah, we just assaulted our flesh and blood brother and threw him in this pit, assumedly to starve to death. And you know what, guys? Anybody hungry? I mean, how awkward and, and horrible is that? Like, these are bad guys. Stone cold. So just on with normal life. Hey, guys, get something to eat. Messed up. And then what happens? Verse 25. And they looked up, and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother. Not there's some irony there, because their hands have already been all over him. Right? For he's our brother. He's our own flesh. And his brother listened to him. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So Judas here, it's it's kind of ironic. It shows maybe a shred of a conscience. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him as a slave. And let's not kill him because he's my brother. But, you know, let's make some money off this, right? So this 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 is twisted stuff. So... What happens next? Verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? So there's some information here we kind of have to import to the text that's not given to us. Reuben must have been off doing something while they hatched this plan to sell him off as a slave. And so Reuben comes back after not overhearing this and is is seeking to rescue out of the pit uh, rescue Joseph out of the pit, and he, Joseph's not there, and he runs to his brothers like, what the heck happened? And he says this, this strange thing, where shall I go? Well, the deal is, Reuben was the oldest. And if he goes home 50 miles away, and they have this report that Joseph's dead or sold off, and his brothers did all this treachery, being the oldest, typically in a family like this, at this time in history, you would be held responsible. The oldest is the leader. And so, Jacob, he's knowing his father Jacob might hold him responsible as the oldest for the life of Joseph. And so he's thinking, I may, like Jacob had to do, I may, Reuben, have to flee for my life because my father might want to take my life because I have failed in my leadership. And that's why he says, where shall I go? So they have to hatch a new plan. Verse 31. Let's check it out. We're almost done here. Then they took Joseph's robe 
and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their, their father and said, this we have found. Please identify. So they're lying through their teeth. Please identify whether it is your son's robe. How, how dark is that too? They don't even say our brother. They say your son, you know. This we found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments. That's a, that's a symbol of, of massive anguish. Then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on, and put sackcloth on his loins. It's a sign of massive grief. And mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him. Imagine the, the duplicitousness of that. These sons who have done all of this and now coming to, 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 to lie again through their teeth as they comfort their father. So he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So that last sentence leads us to where we're headed in the next few weeks. It's kind of a, and it just kind of ends. Like we don't know what's going to happen. It's kind of a cliffhanger at this point, right? Joseph sent off to Egypt to hang out with this guy named Potiphar. So that's, that's the story of 37. That's where it ends. It's, it's a dark story of betrayal, maybe murder, but then they turn away from that and it's just selling your brother into slavery. Like, this is a mess. What is this treachery all about? Like, what is this family dysfunction all about? And here's what I wanna, want us to walk away from today. Here's what I want us to see. Your sin or someone else's sin against you, in Joseph's case, doesn't have to have the last word. And it doesn't for Joseph. It didn't for Joseph. And it will get all worked out in the end. So God's sovereignty, God's loving sovereignty will have the last word. And God has purposes in it all. He's got meaning for you in it all. And if you have a soft heart towards him, that meaning will be for your good. That meaning will be for your good. Your sin or someone else's sin against you doesn't have to have the last word. Now, I want you to see this because this is a, a massive theological concept that, that all Christians need to embrace to make sense of their Bible and to make sense of how God works in our world today. But I want you to see it from the life of Joseph with crystal clarity, okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to fast forward to the end of Joseph's life and the end of his narrative in the Bible that sheds a huge light on how are we going to make sense of chapter 37 today. And there's a ton of details we're going to fly over, but we're just going to fast forward to chapter 50. So fast forward to chapter 50 with me, starting in verse 20. And, at the, and let me just set the context here, and we're going to untangle and, and unravel and, and see all of this in the coming weeks from Joseph's life. But basically, Joseph's in a massive position of power, and his brothers need him, and, and, and they have this poignant, tense, amazing moment of reconciliation. 
And this is what Joseph finally, after it's all said and done, this is what he says to his brothers that did this horrible thing in chapter 37. He, he looks him in the eye and he says this. As for you, you my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So all of this had a purpose. God had a purpose in all of this. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. What an amazing statement of grace, right? In light of all that he's been through. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. There's meaning in all of this. So don't ever say that your suffering is meaningless. That will, that will just lead you to despair. Ultimate despair. And that's, honestly, if you think about it, if we live in a godless universe, all you're left with when you suffer is meaningless. Because our lives ultimately have no meaning. We're just a cosmic accident. Some people get screwed in this life. Some people do real well in this life. Who's to say why? Power to the strong, natural selection. We're just a cosmic accident. There's no true right and wrong. And there's no hope of anything getting worked out. You might as well just get yours while you can. That's meaninglessness. And that's what a godless universe leaves you with, ultimately. Just a cosmic accident. Nothing more to say. There's no one out there listening there's no one above you that can help you. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not God's revelation to all those who are willing to come and believe and drink deeply from his word. Now look at what this, this says in chapter 50. Evil was intentional, purposeful, and meaningful on the part of his brothers. You meant it. You meant those evil things against me. But what does he also say? In God's loving, mysterious sovereignty, God at the same exact time was standing behind those actions and those actions God was orchestrating for Joseph's good and the good of millions of other people in Egypt, the saving of many people that should be kept alive. Verse 20, see that? God meant it. God meant it. This was not God wringing his hands up in heaven and going, uh-oh, there's Joseph's brothers. They're going to do something crazy. I wish I could do something about it, but I can't. That's not what this Bible says. That's not what this verse says. God, God had purpose in all of this. And we'll see in more detail in the coming weeks the meaning that God had in mind and all the good that would come from these horrible decisions that Joseph's brothers made. But don't ever believe for a second that your suffering is meaningless. Even if it's self-inflicted through your own sin or inflicted, inflicted here, like in our text, by someone else's sin against you, usually it's a combination of both, but there's meaning in it for sure. And if you have a soft heart towards God, and a heart of repentance and of faith, no matter the sin that you commit or the sin that's committed against you by someone else, God will work it for your good. That's his promise. And this is just straight Bible. I'm not making this up. Romans 8, 28. This is just the New Testament version of Genesis 50. The, the, the end point of Joseph's life. This is just the New Testament version. 
And we know that for those who love God, do you love God? So we know that if we love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So if you love God, another way to say is to have a soft heart towards God. Another way to, to say it would be, is Jesus your treasure and your trust? Don't tell me what you intellectually assent to. Tell me what you treasure. Tell me what you trust. If that's true of you, this promise is true of you. That no matter what comes your way, God's going to work it for good. And this theological truth is massive. Some of you need a, a Copernican revolution of this truth from Genesis 50, from Romans Eight to land on your life because you're riddled with anxiety because you think it's all up to you. And one false move, and you think you could derail the whole thing. And, and God's word says, no, 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 you're not going to derail the whole thing. You may bear some significant consequences, just like Joseph's brothers did, just like Jacob did, just like Abraham did. But God's working this thing together, and his plan can never be thwarted. He's got you in his loving sovereignty. And to the degree that you love him, and submit to him, and trust him, and treasure him, it's all working for your good. That's good news. In an anxious world, where a lot of y'all are like, if Trump gets to be president, I'm moving. Like, you can chill out if Trump becomes president, honestly. Because it's probably just going to be four years, but we got it for Romans 8.28. <laughs> you with me? And, that, and I don't mean to, to make light of it, but there's lots of things. Let me just break some of this down. Like this, th these truths that Joseph speaks to his brother, massive theological foundation. And I, and I feel bad for bringing up politics. That's typically not something that, that we want to do. I think maybe Trump may be an outlier, so I'll make an exception. But anyway, we're not a political church, and I don't want to have that conversation, so just take that as a footnote. But here's what I will say. Some of this God's sovereignty stuff is a tough pill to swallow. It really is, because you know why? Our lives are hard. And to know that God is sovereign over a hard life, does that mean that he doesn't love me? Does that mean that he's not watching out for me? Let's just talk about Joseph. You are going to see what Joseph went through. Imagine being betrayed by your brothers, thrown into a pit, and then sold into slavery. I mean, that enough. And, and he says that God's sovereign over that? God ordained that? Well, it gets worse. He, he goes to Potiphar's house, and we're going to learn about this in a few weeks. He gets, uh, he gets framed for attempted rape. Goes to prison. How about that? That's not comfortable. That's really, really hard. Years in prison. But at the, end of the, at the end of it all, he was yet willing to say, God meant it. God ordained it for our good. God was standing behind it all, working it for our good. So understanding these massive theological truths doesn't automatically make you immune to the tears that come through the pain in our lives and may it never be that this isn't the kind of church where you can emote and, and that you feel like you can't be honest about your pain or that we're expecting you to slap on the Romans 8.28 smile and it'll be fine, God is sovereign. Well, yeah, it is going to be fine and God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean that we don't have real emotions. 
And I, you better believe that Joseph had real emotions. He's not just some theological robot. Massive theological truth doesn't automatically make you immune to the tears that come through pain in our lives, but it does give you a huge foothold of faith. In the midst of those tears, knowing that one day you're going to see how all the stuff you've been through, even evil actions by your own immediate family upon you, that can be worked out for your good. God will work it out for your good. I know some of you have really tough family situations. God can work that for your good. And he promises to. It may not be overnight, but he promises to. I don't know anybody who's been physically thrown in a pit by their family members, but that, that kind of thing does happen in our world today. Especially sometimes, just think about our context where we're seeking to make disciples in a part of the world where it's illegal to, for a native from that country to convert. And sometimes when those people convert and choose to follow Jesus as their treasure and their trust, those people get treated kind of like this. Maybe it's not a pit, but it's something like that. So this isn't just like an old like, biblical story. This stuff happens in our world today to people for following Jesus. And, 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 and so there's real pits that people get thrown into, but there's also, you know, metaphorical pits that we're all tempted to either launch ourselves into or someone else is trying to launch us in there. And that's why we need the church. That's why we need to come alongside one another and say, you know what, can I cry with you in this? Can I walk with you in this? Can I remind you of what God's promises are through his word in this? Can I pray with you in this? But let's just consider, as we close here, Jesus as the ultimate example. Jesus is the ultimate example. He's the truer and the better Joseph. Consider this. He was rejected by his brothers, his Jewish family. He's rejected by them, and they stripped him, and they beat him, and they treated him with the utmost shame. And they sold him, just like Joseph, for, for money. Judas, his, supposed to be his brother. And there's wicked people all through the life of Jesus, just like the life of Joseph here in 37, that sought to do him massive harm, and they succeeded at doing him short-term harm. But let's look at how Jesus' followers made sense of this. Because it's, it's just, just New Testament version of Joseph's life, Joseph's life. And you don't need to turn there, but it'll be on the screen. In Acts chapter 4, Jesus' followers are being severely persecuted. And they're praying for boldness to endure this persecution. And check out how they pray and see how it ties in to what we're talking about today. For truly in the city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. So they're in Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, and that's where they're praying. For truly in the city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, 
along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Now check it out. What are, what are they saying here? Herod, slimy king that didn't follow God. Puppet king for the Romans. Uh, Pontius Pilate, slimy politician. Just wanted the easy way out, and Jesus got sacrificed as a result. Gentiles and people of Israel shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. These people did wicked things, just like Joseph's brothers, against Jesus. They did exactly what they wanted to do. But look at verse 28. They pray, they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So God's sovereignty, they're acknowledging here, is working through suffering. These, these wicked people did exactly what they wanted, but God's predestination doesn't make human beings puppets or robots, and those who seek to do wicked things will bear the consequences for those actions. But even in this, his predestining plan mysteriously is very, very real. And even though their, verse 27, wicked actions were fully implemented, God was still at work. God meant it for good. And Joseph said he meant it for good for the saving of all these people in Genesis 50, verse 20, 21. Think of how much more in Jesus. The wickedness used by God, ordained by God, for the saving of millions, who knows how many, billions. So Jesus is the ultimate example of this. They meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God ordained it for good. So don't ever say that your suffering is meaningless. Your sin or someone else's sin against you does not have to have the last word. It didn't for Joseph. It didn't for Jesus. And it all gets worked out in the end. God's loving sovereignty will have the last word as long as you have a soft heart towards him. And you can have a hard heart towards him and his sovereignty is still going to get worked out. Like you can betray him like Peter and that's going to work out for Peter's good. You can betray him like Judas and it's not going to get worked out. We, we, we'd recommend the Peter route. Both are uncomfortable. God's sovereignty is still going to get worked out. But we would recommend for your joy the soft heart towards God. The soft heart towards God. God's, 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 God's plan is going to work itself out no matter what. But how you embrace that plan and how you experience that plan is very consequential for your life. Does that make sense? But if you have a soft heart towards him, these promises can never be snatched out of your hand. If Jesus is your treasure and your trust, nothing can take these promises for you. And that's such good news this morning. Ultimately, nothing can touch you. In the long term, in the scope of eternity, nothing can touch you. God's got you. That's to help you sleep well at night. No matter what. Let me leave you with this illustration that I think is analogous to what we've seen in 37 and to the life of Jesus as well. Because Jesus died for our sins, was risen from the dead in space, time, and history, this is, the, this is, this is what we can rest in this morning. I, I want you to imagine the beauty of a massive mountain range. And when I was in high school, I got the opportunity to hike uh, Long's Peak. It's one of the highest peaks in Colorado in the Rocky Mountains. 
And I remember getting near the top. And when you get near the top, there's these mat. I don't know if you, anybody ever climbed a real high, like 12,000, 13, 14, anybody? Only Cam? Don't be shy. You guys, you see at the, at the top there, those massive boulder fields, right? At least on Long's Peak there is. It's like, a, it's like you're on another planet. It's these huge boulders like this. And that's all there is up there. And, and there's nothing growing up there, and it's, there's no green, and it's just like this weird environment that I'd never even seen before. Like all of these huge rocks, just one after the other, and you got to climb on them. And so it'd be really um, important that you're paying attention because you don't want to turn an ankle or break a leg at 14,000 feet. And so you're staring these boulders in the face and really paying attention And up close to these boulders, it's really hard to think through how does, how does this ugly environment really contribute to the beauty and the majesty of this mountain range that will take your breath away when you stand back and look at it. And it doesn't make any sense that this ugly little environment, at least to me, could contribute to the stunning beauty well, in Joseph's life, in Jesus' life, and in our lives, we got to walk through the boulder field at some, some points, sometimes. But make no mistake, God is with us in the boulder field. And in his mysterious, loving sovereignty, he's ordained that you're right there. And often we live our lives staring these boulders like right in the face and they're huge and they're sharp and they sometimes can be crushing. There's no way you can lift it. You feel powerless to lift it. And it's just right here. And it can be consuming. But here's the great news of the Christian life. Here's the great news of the Christian life. There's coming a day when God will take you by the hand and he's going to take you on a long walk. 40 miles away from those huge boulders and tell us to turn around and look at the grandeur of the beauty of those mountains. And it'll be the most beautiful, purposeful, glorious vision of grandeur that you've ever seen. And those huge, jagged boulders that, that couldn't be moved when you were up close will fit in as a tiny little speck that God placed strategically to make this massive holistic vision of beauty that we can stand back from and have it take your breath away. See, for those who are in Christ, that's the vision. That's the vision. We live all up with the boulders in our face, but one day you're going to see how it all fits in to the massive picture of stunning, breathtaking beauty because Jesus was risen, risen from the dead and it's all true. And he's working for those who love him and been called according to his purpose. So if you're in the boulder field today, keep walking. Keep walking. Like God walks with you. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. The tears may come and he'll cry with you and we'll cry with you. And Jesus, by his spirit alive in you, if you're a follower of Christ today, walks with you. He walks in you. 
And you can know that one day that vision will all make sense and it will one day be beautiful. And until then, we wait with faith and we wait together and we trust together and we walk together. Let's pray. Father, may it be so that the truths of your word land deeply and securely in our hearts today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.